Hello, guys. Good to be with you this evening. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We are finishing the Gospel of Luke. We've been journeying together through this book off and on since Christmas of 2019, and we finally come here to the end uh, this afternoon. If you need a Bible, there's some on the back table. As always, if you don't own a Bible, please take one home with you. We want everyone to have a Bible. So Luke 24, we're in verses 13 through 53. Uh, We live in a day where personal experience and feelings trump anything that stands in its way. Uh, If someone says they've experienced something, you can't argue with it, right? Case closed. Um, I would even say that most of me and Elizabeth's tiffs in our marriage are over small things uh, that usually involve me not remembering something that she remembers. And because in my mind, I don't remember it, I don't have that personal experience, um, then I will dig my heels in and just keep arguing till you know, the day is long. And um, I think one of the ways that this manifests itself for us is I'm notorious for watching a movie with her and probably for the entire thing, I'm sitting there saying, I've never seen this before. And she's like, yes, we have. We've watched this before. And I'll say, no, I haven't. I have not seen this movie. I don't even know what's happening right now. This is awesome. And she'll say, yes, we have. And we watched it three years, whatever it is. And then always, without fail, there's about 15 minutes left of the movie. Something happens. And I go, oh, I've seen this. Right? And it just, I recognize it. I realize it. Um, and I go, you're right, right? She's always right. She really is. And, um, but if I don't have that epiphany, then I'm destined to go to my grave disagreeing with her because I personally don't have a memory or an experience with it. I mean, everything in small ways like that to bigger ways, everything is about personal experience for us. Validation of truth even comes through personal experience in our day and age. What is true for you, as we're all aware of now, is your truth. What is true for me is my truth. What comes through it uh, is is what we want to make of it, right? What I think, what I feel, what I experience is ultimate to me and you. And it sounds good, but when we think about it, it really makes no sense. Um, And furthermore, no one even lives this way because what I think is true, I want everyone else to follow that as truth. So our truths are constantly even competing, right? And it's all based on personal experience. Right? We then take this idea that personal experience is everything and we take it into our pursuits, we take it into our highest aims in life. Um, so we're all sort of climbing this mountain in this world and maybe there's someone who's gone before us and they've climbed the top of that mountain and they've achieved the highest sense of human achievement and success and as they come back down the mountain on the other side we pass them on the way up and they look at us and they say hey whatever it is that you think is up there it's not there you know I've told you this before but famously Jim Carrey the actor said I wish everyone could get rich and famous so they can see that it's not the answer so we look at someone like a Jim Carrey who's climbed the mountain and they're on the way back down And they say, your hopes and dreams aren't up there. And we stop and we listen to them just for a moment. And then we go, maybe not for me, though. And so we keep climbing, right? We keep climbing. We hike the trail in pursuit of our own experiences and what we intuitively think is up there. And then this bleeds over into our faith. As Christians today, we are constantly seeking experiences. We're constantly seeking this sense of feeling something in our faith. 
And in the pursuit of experiences, we often can become let down, even disappointed in some ways, and we're left then going, okay, if this isn't it, then we'll kind of have to modify some of the things that we read that we think are truth, whether it's a moral thing or something even larger than that, because we think if I can modify this into what maybe is truth, then it will give me the experience that I'm after. And Jesus here is showing us in Luke 24 that our belief, everything that our life rests on in this world is grounded in something far more sure than personal experience. And when you can finally come around to see this, the personal experience, though, will follow. But we can't get the cart before the horse. We're in Luke's resurrection account here at the end, and he gives us, in his resurrection accounting, uh, we began to look at the first part last week, but he gives us this triptych. A triptych is a three-paneled parallel image or painting that you might see in a museum or a church that's, that's showing a connection to a certain theme. So we saw this, if you remember back, when we looked at the parable of the lost coin, right? We saw the lost sheep and the lost son. It's a triptych. Right? It's teaching us something. And the third one always is giving us sort of something new uh, that catches us at the end. And so here in this resurrection, we have this triptych again. We see this first picture. We saw it last week where the women go to the tomb and Jesus' body is not there, but there's angels there. Right? And so you can almost imagine that scene. You can picture the women there hearing the angels telling them what has happened. The second picture is what our text is looking at here uh, this afternoon, we see Easter midday. It's the same day. And there's two people traveling on a road to Emmaus, and Jesus intercepts them on that path. And you can imagine that painting there. Jesus teaching these two people in their hearts, burning within them. The third picture is also in our text, and it's of Easter evening. And you can see Jesus standing in the midst of his disciples suddenly, and they're startled. Each story has the same exact plot line. There's confusion, what is happening, there's a rebuke by either God through an angel or Jesus himself, there's instruction, there's teaching about what actually is true, and then there's a witness. There's always a witness. So Luke 24 comes and it means to act for us this evening as we come to the end of this gospel account as a spiritual defibrillator right, to to put our feet on solid ground and in doing so to resurrect our affection for Jesus and to resurrect our joyful meaning in life. So we're just going to look at two different parts, uh, these last two uh, triptych scenes here together. And the first one I want us to see is this, in verses 13 through 35, I want us to see that when you see the Bible is all about Jesus, your heart will burn with passion for him. When you realize the Bible is all about Jesus, your heart will burn with passion for him. That's the first thing we see. So let's read together in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, so Easter Sunday, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? 
And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So here we have two people. We don't know who at least one of them is. In verse 18, we're told that one of them is named Cleopas. They're traveling on a road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's a seven-mile journey. It's Easter Sunday, and we're told they're discussing everything that has just taken place. And we know exactly what they're talking about because they say in verse 21, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. So these are the things that they're discussing, which is what? Jesus died. We thought he was the one. What is going on here? They're confused. That's what they're thinking. But here, Jesus draws near and walks with them. And here's the key word in the narrative here. They don't recognize him. They don't recognize him. Yet they're talking about him. This scene is amazing to me because, just think about it, if you were walking on a road with a friend and a stranger, i.e. someone you don't recognize, just comes up to you and says, what are you guys talking about? You're going to go, go away, right? Why are you interrupting me? You know what I mean? That would be kind of weird. You wouldn't engage. But these two disciples do. And we're told that when they engage, they stop walking. And Luke says they look sad. Why are they sad? Why are they devastated? Because of what's happened, right? And so they respond to Jesus ironically. They say to him, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know about these things? Right? I mean, this is meant to be a little funny for us because we know who Jesus is, but they don't know who Jesus is, right? Apparently, this death of Jesus would have made the front page of the news. Everybody seemingly knows about this. And Jesus, I love this for some reason, he says, what things? So what's he doing here? Is he playing with them? Is he just trying to have a little fun with them? No, he's, he's drawing something out of them in order to draw them in. But what does he draw out? He draws out who they think Jesus is and what their hopes actually were. Why were they so sad? Look at verse 19. 
right, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Look at verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. This is why they were sad and confused. They had hope in this one. Then to top it all off, they tell the story from the morning, right? They say, we saw these women, they came and told us about what they had seen. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, oh foolish ones, you see that in verse 25, slow of heart to believe. And then notice this, right? He doesn't say, why don't you believe the women? And he doesn't say, better yet, why don't you believe the angels? No. He says, why don't you believe the prophets? They say, we thought he was the one to redeem Israel, meaning we thought he was the Messiah, the long-awaited king. And Jesus says, the prophets spoke of how the one must suffer and then enter his glory. Suffering comes before glory. And then look down in verse 27. Jesus began to teach them about all the things beginning with Moses and the prophets about himself. We see the same thing in the next triptych, where Jesus is going to do this with the disciples in the house. It says that he was everything that was written about me, verse 44, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Basically what's happening here is Jesus is saying every single part of the Old Testament, because those three chunks of the Old Testament would have been thought in Judaism as the entirety of the Old Testament. It's about himself. He's teaching these things. They still don't know it's him, though. They don't know yet. But he reminds them of the things that Moses wrote about in the first five books. And all the prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the minor prophets. I wish I could have heard this sermon. It would have been way better than mine. I tell you that much. But just think about what Jesus is doing. We can imagine what he's going to do here. Although he had not revealed himself yet, he's basically walking through parts of the Old Testament saying, that thing right there, that's about the Messiah, meaning that's about me. It's about me. Remember when the curse entered the world? And Moses wrote about how God said that through the seed of the woman, the seed would crush the head of the serpent? You're looking at him. I'm alive. Remember when Abel... The first known shepherd in the Bible was murdered by his brother and we're told that his blood cried out to God from the ground. The shepherd who was killed was about me. Remember when God promised to Abraham that through his offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed? Paul tells us, it doesn't say offsprings in Galatians, it says offspring. Jesus says he's talking about me. Remember when Abraham was told to go and sacrifice his only son? And he almost did, but God provided a ram instead. Remember that? I'm the true son. That God did not hold his hand from slaying. I was that one. Remember when Jacob saw a ladder going up to heaven from the earth in his dream? The ladder, right? Me, right? Remember when Israel needed to sacrifice a lamb on the night so that they would be redeemed from their slavery in Egypt? And if they put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts, their firstborn wouldn't die, that lamb? was pointing to me. Remember all the, the tabernacle that was constructed in the mercy seat where the blood would drip on the altar, right? Remember the manna? I'm the true and better bread, right? This, the serpent on the stick that if it was lifted up and you were bitten by the snake, you would live. 
It's about me. Remember Jonah, Job, the innocent sufferer? I'm the true innocent sufferer. Remember David and the promise that one would come from him that would sit on the throne forever, right? Talking about me, remember Isaiah and the one who was prophesied to come who would be the servant that would suffer. Remember Jonah, the prophet going into the belly of the sea for three days and then being spit out on dry land again with a new message, right? Remember the story about Hosea, the faithful husband to the prostituted wife. You're looking at him. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he taught the things concerning himself. The Bible is not about me, right? It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And that's what he's teaching them. The key to understand the Bible is Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. Let me ask you, how do you think of the Bible? When you read the Bible, what do you think you're doing with it? How are you reading it? I mean, there's many people in our world who wouldn't claim to be Christians, and they would read the Bible as this fallible, ancient literary work that kind of maybe gives you some insight into ancient culture or, you know, Jewish religion, maybe Islamic religion. Right? There's people that could enjoy it for its advanced poetry and prose because it is very advanced. There are many Christians who might read the Bible like it's a recipe book or a rule book to follow in order to have a good life or a life that maybe makes them feel more acceptable to God. There are Christians who may even look at the Bible and read it like a, like a horoscope or something, or a crystal ball of sorts. Many can view the Bible as even two different books, like the God of the Old Testament is just really angry, and so Jesus comes in the new, and he kind of settles that God down so that God can be received as a God of love. In, order, in other words, the Old Testament is something you can just avoid. Remember how the New Testament, though, says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for salvation? That's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't canonized yet. Jesus, this should be on the screen for you, Jesus said this to the Pharisees in John. He says, you diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The Bible is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I'm sure you, like me, love Thanksgiving. And maybe the best part of Thanksgiving is the leftovers, okay? If we're being honest, okay? It's pretty great. And this last year, the day after Thanksgiving, I'm sitting there eating the leftovers. And so is my daughter, and um, I wasn't really noticing her at first, and all of a sudden I looked up, and I looked at her, and she was eating out of this huge Tupperware with a spoon, gravy. Like, not the biscuits and gravy kind of gravy, where there's actually something in it, like the, what, what is that, like fat or something? I don't even know what that is, like the stuff that goes on mashed potatoes, right? Just straight up gravy, and I go, what are you doing? And she says, I'm eating mashed potatoes. And I said, that's not what you're doing. Right? No, that is just straight up gravy, and she did something like looked at it and put it down and walked away and kind of just felt really sick to her stomach or something, you know, like in some sense, you know. Like she's thinking she's eating the potatoes, but really she's eating the gravy, right? The gravy is great, right? But not by itself. It's like the adornment, right, to the substance of the mashed potatoes, And I wonder for how many of us are kind of like that all these years. We read the Bible, and it's like we're eating the gravy thinking, I'm really eating mashed potatoes. But we're eating all the adornments. Like the Bible 
it has history in it, right? Like true history that you can read and trust and all that. The Bible has real guidance and wisdom and direction and instruction and moral teaching for your life, right? It has all these things that really is a part of it, but that's like the gravy, if I could say it that way. That's like the adornment of what actually the substance is. Jesus is the substance. The Bible is introducing you every time you open it to Jesus Christ. I mean, you might wonder if you've been at GBC for a while now, you go, why does every sermon just talk about Jesus? Can we talk about something else? Whether we're in Ecclesiastes or Daniel or Jonah, which we're going to be in a few weeks, or First Kings or Isaiah or wherever we are, we always talk about Jesus at some point, right? Do I just have nothing else to say to you? No, it's because all the Bible's about Jesus. I wouldn't be preaching the Bible if we didn't talk about Jesus, right? He's the interpretive key. And so this sermon Jesus gave was so good that when they get to their destination, the man that was at first an awkward stranger is now urged to stay with them for dinner and even the night. Verse 28, do you see it there? They get to their destination and Luke says that Jesus acts like he's going further. I love this. You've always been in a conversation, maybe you want to act like, you're like, no, no, I got somewhere to go, you know, and you're kind of wanting to break free or something. We might think that's what Jesus is doing, but not at all. It's not what he's doing. He's just drawing them in again. They urge him to stay because it's too late. In their mind, it's dark. You don't want to travel at night. There's robbers. There's wild animals. So Jesus stays. He's not reluctant, though. He's just drawing them out. And before every meal in a Jewish home, they would give a prayer of thanks. And the head of the household would break the bread. Why Jesus the stranger is doing that, we don't really know. But he's the one who does this. Remember the beginning? Remember our key? They did not recognize him. They still don't. But the bread is broken and we are told their eyes were opened and they recognize him. And then he vanishes. They reminisce. Verse 37. Did not our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The, heart, the word is cardia. It's Greek. It's talking about the internal feature of who you are. It's your, your mind, your volition, your will, your emotions, your conscience of what is right and wrong. It's the center of who you are. They're saying, didn't it burn? It's not destructive kind of burning. It's, it's to feel a strong emotion, especially passion. They have a heart that is roaring with like a fire of passion for Jesus. There's been confusion. There's been a correction. There's been teaching. Right? Now there's witness. They rose that same hour and they went back to Jerusalem. Right? They just traveled the whole day. They got to where they were trying to go. They just told Jesus, you shouldn't travel at night. Stay with us. They're like, who cares what we just said, right? We're going back to Jerusalem, the place we just came from. They didn't waste the day, did they, though? There are different people now. They burst into the home where the apostles are and they say, it's all true. It's all true. The women were right. Apparently, Peter has seen him too since now because they say Peter was right. Paul testifies to this in 1 Corinthians 15. They say, oh my word, you guys, our hearts burned. They came alive when he broke the bread. We recognized him. Maybe they're remembering Jesus blessing the bread before he broke it and fed the 5,000. Maybe they're remembering that night of the Lord's Supper when he broke the bread. Maybe, as he broke the bread, they saw the scars. 
we have a resurrected, perfected body with scars. Why? Just so we know it's him. Just so we'd remember what he did. This is why we sing about this. This is the hymn, The Power of the Cross. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds. For through your suffering I am free. Right before the throne, my name is graven on his hands. Right? Whatever it was, we don't know. And we can just enjoy scripture being silent on it here. It was then that they recognized him. We know that. Because they say it. Do you know what Jesus is doing here? Notice. It's very interesting. He's keeping himself unrecognizable to them. He's resurrected. Why? Because he did not want their belief in his resurrection to rest on their personal experience. He doesn't want your belief in his resurrection just to rest on your personal experience. The weight and the evidence of the resurrection stands first and foremost on the firm ground of Scripture. The eyewitness accounts, they are important. They were very important. But in Luke's gospel, before anyone understands that it's Jesus, before he records anybody ever understanding that it's really him, he proves the resurrection from the scriptures. We are witnesses to that. And look, you have the same word in your lap right now, don't you? The same word that he's been talking about. Our belief in the resurrection does not rest on personal experience. It rests on the Bible. This is why Jesus says in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus' passion and resurrection only makes sense in the beautiful context of the Old Testament. If we don't have that, we have no idea what's happening and why. So personal experience does not win the day. Feelings are meant to be located in a sure foundation. And let me tell you, I mean, I'm a Myers-Briggs, like, feeler, okay? I'm not, like, you tease out there or whatever you are, right? I mean, like, I've had to learn this over the years, right? Because I even just want to seek the experience, you know, seek that part of it. But no, there's a sure foundation where feelings are birthed from. This is why Samuel Rutherford, I've used this quote many times, it's one of my favorites, says, believe God's word and power more than you believe your own feelings and experiences. Your rock is Christ, and it's not the rock which ebbs and flows, but your sea. I'm getting beat by the waves. Might not feel good today, but I'm still standing. With that said, her Bible reading should have a personal experience to it, though because it's pointing us to our personal God. Jesus didn't rise so that we would just have new knowledge, but a new relationship. This is why they don't go, oh, now I understand the Old Testament. They go, our hearts were burning with passion. When you see that the Bible's all about Jesus, your heart will burn with passion for him because you see it's all about him and what he's accomplished for you. And that leads me to the second thing. What the Bible says Jesus accomplished wasn't just for you. And when you grasp that, we will bear witness to his greatness. Verse 36, as they were talking about these things, 
Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Here's a third triptych. They're joyfully talking about these two that just burst in and said, what has just happened to them? And here Jesus appears and what does he say? Peace to you. Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. I mean, don't lose sight of this, right? I mean, if you're at home tonight, I mean, just the irony of it, right? If you're at home tonight and you're alone, or maybe you're in a group of people, and I just snuck up behind you without you knowing I was there, and I grabbed you and I said, relax, right? You're going to be like, why? What I, you know what I mean? Like, that would be so, that's the most opposite thing you would expect to hear. But that's exactly what happens. He just shows up, peace to you. Peace be with you. This is a greeting, you guys, that would imply that a great battle was fought and the victory was won. It was won over the prince of this world. And peace between God and man was accomplished. Like this is why we end every gathering. Go in peace right? Go in the peace of Christ. That's why the New Testament authors often end with that. Why? Because the battle is over. It's won. Even though Jesus greets them with peace, they're confused. Same pattern, right? They think he's a spirit, which maybe we thought that because he just disappeared before, right? But the grace continues to flow. Even though their hearts are slow to believe, he says, look, touch me. Come and see. A spirit doesn't have a body, And then just for the icing on the cake or the mic drop, as it were, he's like, give me something to eat, right? I feel bad that it was broiled fish, honestly. I don't know if that was your first meal since Thursday night. I mean, that would be pretty brutal. But Jesus is better than me. He ate it, okay? He ate the broiled fish, right? He's like, I have a body, right? And it's got scars. It's like ours. It eats. It talks. It walks. You could touch him but it's unlike ours too. It's glorious. It's resurrected. John's account tells us the doors were locked and he appears. Verse 41, they still disbelieved for joy. What does that mean? It means you can disbelieve because you think something's impossible. But now they're having a hard time believing because it's too good to be true. That's a different kind of disbelief. 
Then he does with them what he did with the two on the road, right? He opens their minds to understand the scriptures, right? Which reminds us, we can't just read the Bible and think we're going to understand it by ourselves. We need God to teach us, don't we? Confusion, correction, teaching. Third triptych. Witness. We have witness, but it's unlike the other witnesses, isn't it? We've had the women come back from the tomb. We've had the two come back and say, we recognized him when he broke the bread. But it's not just for the inner circle to know that he is alive. Now, Jesus adds something here. What does he say? Verse 47, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The resurrection hope is for all people. They are commissioned to go to all nations. Right? The word is not like our modern world, which has like territorial lines drawn and governments risen up. No, this word nations is the word we get our word ethnicities from. So people from all over the globe are the people who the suffering of Christ and resurrection are for. Somalis, Germans, Pakistanis, Russians, Yemeni, Ukrainians, Papuans, Peruvians, Tibetans, Chinese, the French, you. Even the people of that culture that you would say, oh, I can never live there. They are given a message. They are to bear witness to this message. And the message is repent, meaning you're trying to climb this mountain thinking your hopes and dreams are up there, right? But turn back, right? Return to your maker. And when you return to your maker, there is an announcement. There's something that is proclaimed here. What is it? The forgiveness of sins. You can have peace between you and God because someone has died for you. Guys, our message is not a philosophy. It's not a way of life. It's not just good behavior. It is the eternal good news based on historical evidence prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled by Jesus the Messiah. We are to preach Christ, his suffering and glory, him crucified and risen. That is the message. He says they are witnesses of these things. The world has a sin problem. We are awash with guilt and shame, and so we use self-protection to guard against what other people would know about us. We want to push others down, compare ourselves to other people so that we feel okay about our own sin. This is not just our problem, though. It is a world problem. This is why Paul says in Romans, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him? in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written. This is Old Testament stuff right here. How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news of peace there are three billion people in the world today that are not just lost, meaning they've rejected Jesus, they've never even heard about him. Three 
billion people. They don't have any access to the gospel. I mean, we've sung about this tonight, I don't know how many times. We've heard it already in the sermon, I don't know how many times. There's people who've never heard it once. I've told you before about my trip to supporting some missionaries in western China amongst the Tibetan Buddhist people and traveling with him from village to village. And as we go through maybe three or four towns, he's silent. And then we finally pass through one town. And these towns have thousands and thousands of people in them. And he finally would say, we know one believer who's here. I would hear this guy share the gospel with somebody. I didn't understand the language. So whenever, you know, I could see the, the look on this person's face that heard the gospel. And the moment that they're done, I would go, what did you say? What happened? And they said every single time, almost like what these people say here, they disbelieve for joy and they're marveling. They go, I've never heard anything like this. They would say to him, who's Jesus? Does he live in the next town over the mountain? Is that the name of a city? Oh no, this is a person who lived many years ago and he's alive today. How will they call on him? Us. Right? You, me. We are witnesses. You might say, well, I never saw the resurrected like these people did, but that's the wonder of this passage. Remember, it's not based on personal experience, is it? Why didn't you believe the prophets? If you've repented, if you've received forgiveness, we are told here that God sends the promised Holy Spirit into your life to regenerate you. You are witnesses to that. Are you changed at all? Are you different? Have you experienced the peace of Christ? Have you known him? Have you known forgiveness? We are witnesses. I mean, it's like if, if anybody, has anyone in here ever, um, uh, anyone in here, sorry, has anyone in here ever survived the sinking of the Titanic? That's what I'm trying to ask you. Anybody? All right, we got one person. Sweet. Let's talk after this, okay? I have some questions. But, right, no one survived that, okay? If you are, you're very old. Do you believe that it happened? Why? I hope you say yes, right? Why? We have the news, right? We can look back. We got all this news reports. There's great evidence of that. Would you say you're a witness to that? No. But what if you had a great-grandmother who 20 years ago you sat down with and survived the Titanic and she told you all about it? Or what if she gave you the diaries and you could pass those along now? Would you say you're a witness? You'd probably go, yeah. I saw the ticket. I talked to her. Right? You become now this sort of eyewitness, right? You've heard it from a source itself. And this is the beauty of the Bible, you guys. It's the news source. But it's sitting you down daily with the one who it's all about. Remember last, last week I talked to you about, do you act as if Jesus were still dead? Right? You have a living, breathing God who speaks to you through his word. Right? You have this personal relationship with God through his word. The Bible is introducing you to him. And so we see that as he goes out from Bethany, does he die again? No, he is taken up into heaven. He is seated on the throne. He is living today. This is the testimony. And this is exactly why when Jesus leaves this time, they are filled with joy. They're not confused. They're not sad. 
they go back to the temple blessing God. Why? Because they know he's alive. And their witness is now strengthened when the Spirit is sent that lives inside of us and changes us. And as our hearts burn, we witness. So the personal experience side is important, but it's the gravy, right? It's not the mashed potatoes. But until you see Jesus is not just for you, but for all, you won't witness. As long as we're self-focused and despairing and not chewing and meditating on the gospel ourselves, that gospel of peace, you won't share it. Just like if you're starving, you're not going to share your food. But if you're full, you'll share your food. Do you know what I'm saying? I was a paper boy for my first job in eighth and ninth grade. Fun fact. It was horrible. It was up way too early in the morning. Montana winters weren't great. But every morning I got a stack of newspapers delivered to my house. Um, I would get a copy for myself. One um, benefit of being a paper boy, they give you one copy for yourself. And I would read the sports page. I tell you what, they didn't deliver one paper to my doorstep and say, read it, and then once you're done, go give it to the first house. And then I would tell Jerry at the first house, hey, when you're done with it, give it to Susan, you know, at this address or that kind of thing. That's not how it worked, right? We know this, even if you don't know what a newspaper is now. I got a stack of all the same news, multiple papers. From one day, the same news. I didn't keep the whole stack and just read every single newspaper and go, I got the information locked down. Ask me what happened yesterday. That's not what I did. Not at all. If I did that every day, I would get fired, right? No, I dished it out because it wasn't delivered to me for me. But I was a part of my life too, right? I mean, I need that news. And let me tell you, on a day where something big was actually happening in Helena, Montana, right, my job felt kind of important. I'm not going to lie. I did as an eighth grader. Right? We have not, I know people use this all the time, but I think it's a better analogy. We have not been given a love letter in the Bible just to you. No, we, are, we are paper boys and paper girls. Right? That, that when we hear of Jesus and this news is delivered to us, our hearts burst with flames. As we have this passion for Jesus, as our hearts are warm to him, as we hear that he is a God for all peoples. We have this stack of gospel news, and he says, spread the word. Spread the word of peace. The war is over. The battle is won. Come under the rule of the one true king. And when you do that, peace, forgiveness. He's the worthy one. And guys, he clothes you for the task. You notice that? Until you are clothed with power from on high. He's going to send the Spirit. This is a word that implies putting on something that you don't naturally possess. It's not a part of who you are naturally. We are empowered to witness by God. We are never alone. You have all that you need. You have all that you need. You have the word, right? You have the Spirit. We might think we need more knowledge, more tools. No, we need the Word and the Spirit. My wife's aunt, Aunt Becky, 
she made these sleeping masks for my girls. You know, things go over your eyes. My five-year-old sleeps with a sleeping mask every single night. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's adorable too. Okay, when I go in there and I'm going to bed, I check in on them and they have these little sleeping masks on. It's not so fun at bedtime though, because, you know, if you have young kids, when you get your kids to bed, it's like herding cats, right? You get one in bed and then the next one gets out and that kind of thing. Okay, and how, how many nights I put Isla in bed and then she is all tucked in and she goes, I forgot my sleeping mask. She has to go find it. And I tell her every single time, you don't need that thing, right? But she thinks she needs it. And I'm trying to work through with Elizabeth what are the ramifications of this long term, right? But she thinks she needs this thing to sleep. You know what she doesn't do if we don't find it one night? She doesn't go, I'm going to stay up all night. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to do that. She never does that. Why? Because she has everything that she needs in her little exhausted body to go to sleep. She has everything that she absolutely needs. She doesn't need the sleeping mask. I'm sure it helps. I'm sure it's helpful in some different ways. Just like for us as Christians, guys, there's so many other things that help. Apologetics, right? Learning how to ask good questions and socialize with people. That's helpful stuff, right? Those are good tools that we all could use and have. But you have all that you need if you're a Christian. You have the gospel. You have the word, right? You have the spirit. You have everything that you need. God has not sold you short and told you to go. He's given you everything that you need today. Like, you don't need to wait a week, right? You have everything you need today. I know we, there's that old Breton prayer that says, oh God, thy sea is so great and my boat is so small. And yeah, we all feel that way. But Brother Andrew, one of the greatest missionaries of the last hundred years, who'd smuggled Bibles you know, into Russia and, and behind you know, the Iron Curtain and into China, said, one man with God is a majority. Why? Because he's been clothed with power from on high. This is why these guys rejoice. They get to serve their king. They have a message. And where do they go? They go to the temple. That's where it all began back in December of 2019, isn't it? Where the silence of God was finally broken after 400 years. God appeared to a priest. Said the king is coming. Your son is going to prepare the way for him. And here he is, the end of Luke. He's on his throne. Thought I'd end by reading you these two things from the earlier part of Luke. What does Zechariah say in his song? You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What does Simeon say? Lord, when he sees Jesus, you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the nations and for glory to your people Israel. 
the Bible is all about Jesus. And all the work that he did was for all the world. And one day, all of the world will finally recognize him. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. We adore you. We sing that old chorus, glorify your name in all the earth. Help us to know that you're calling us to be a part of that. Free us from our self-preservation and our desires for comfort. Free us from not chewing on the good news of peace for our own lives so that we are feeling starved every day instead of spreading the news of what you've done. Free us that you would be known as the king over all things. May our confidence rest in your word, God. Would you open our eyes, unveil our eyes to see Jesus in all of his glory, that our hearts would burn with passion for him. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.